0: Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. for mankind. What up everybody? Welcome to Smart People Podcast. This is Christopher. Where, where are you, John? This
1: is Jonathan.
0: Yeah. I'm going to mix it up on you every time like that. Today, we're going to talk with Dr. Mike Rose. He's a nationally recognized American education scholar, is noted for his significant contribution to the study of literacy and for his insights into the struggles of working class America. Dr. Rose is a graduate of Loyola University He went to the University of Southern California to get his M.S., and then he went to the University of California, Los Angeles for his M.A. and his Ph.D. He's been teaching in a range of educational settings over for the past 40 years, from kindergarten to job training, etc., and he's written numerous books. We're only going to be discussing the one, but he has also received a Guggenheim Fellowship the Grawmeyer Award in Education, and the Commonwealth Club of California Award for Literacy Excellence in Nonfiction. He's been honored by the Spencer Foundation, the McDonnell Foundation Program, the National Council of Teachers of English. It goes on and on, but he's a smart dude, and I think you'll, you'll agree with us after listening to him. We picked Dr. Rose because he has an amazing new book out. It's called Why School? Reclaiming Education for All of Us. And it raises a lot of good questions, such as what it means to be educated, uh, what it what is intelligence, things like that. And I, I guess we thought that it's a fitting topic for our podcast, which is basically all about learning and yeah. all about expanding your brain. Also, right? the question, "Why school?" Well, yeah, and why school? Because it's just it's the topic of a lot of debate these days, and uh, I get to hear all about it since my girlfriend is currently getting her master's in education, I get to hear about the the goods and bads, ups and downs. You know what I mean? I do, I do. She tells me too. Oh, come on. I guess, you know, I found it pretty interesting talking with Dr. Rose, John. I wanted to see what you had to say, but I'm more of the belief that we really, really screw up in education. Like, I mean, I've said this before, but if you just dedicate to school, you don't have to really learn anything. You just have to learn how to get by, you know, where... Where in college, they make you kind of create these things and these projects. I think you learn more through that, you know, and he kind of talks about that.
1: Yeah, I agree. And he mentions, too, where not only are the teachers teaching to have kids pass those standardized tests, but as you mentioned, kids learn what they need to do to get by. And that's all they have to do. I mean, that's that's how we got through high school. Let's be honest. Yeah,
0: I could tell you some really cool ways to cheat on a test or a quiz.
1: Attention. We do not condone cheating on Smart People Podcast.
0: (laughs) You know, one of the things that got me kind of interested, though, in this subject was I was watching, I recently watched the entire series of The Wire, that TV show, you know? Mm -hmm. It's all about Baltimore, inner city kids and everything. And it's really, really interesting because it's gotten a lot of awards and it says it depicts kind of inner city life pretty well. And it shows these kids who, who go to school and how they don't really – it's not that they don't want to learn. It's just they don't see any use in it when they see people on corners and stuff working drugs. And they do – a—I think it's season four. They do a really good depiction of the no child left behind and the, the standardized testing, which Dr. Rose talks about, how these kids are so uninterested that all the teachers do is teach them verbatim, almost verbatim, the questions that are going to be on these standardized tests so they get funding – so that the teachers can at least make a living and things like that. And it I'm sure it's not that corrupt everywhere, uh, probably not even that many places, but the idea is there. I mean, everybody mentions it, that the standardized testing is a tough thing to get around. It makes public school teaching difficult.
1: Yeah, because then the teachers are evaluated on how their kids do, so they have more of an incentive to make sure that the majority of their kids are passing these tests. Whether or not they're learning anything is debatable.
0: Yeah, and I mean, in in our county, for example, teachers, public school teachers need to have a master's degree, which I don't know if it's like that everywhere, but you get your master's degree and I don't care where you get it from, you know a a decent amount about the subject. I mean, you can't just breeze through it like it's nothing. So they should be given a little more leniency because if they were, I think you become a teacher to teach, to help. You don't do it for a paycheck. You're going to do it for the right intentions. And you're going to create a pretty good atmosphere. I mean, obviously, there has to be some guidelines, but the structure and things like that, I think, as, as Dr. Rose alludes to, need to change. And we're getting there. I mean, we're incorporating technology into classrooms, which is definitely beneficial. I wish we would have done more of it because you could have done all my homework for me. But, yeah. you know. All right. Well, uh, I guess also we wanted to mention we encourage everyone to go to our website, smartpeoplepodcast.com. You can read about who we have on the show, a little bio about them, and just get involved in our discussions. You can leave comments. You can contact us. Also, don't forget to use our Amazon widget. We sell it every time we're on the air, but it's the only way we make a buck, and it's at no cost to you. So bottom left-hand corner, click on the Amazon symbol, brings you to Amazon. You can order your stuff, save that link, if you will. That'd be even better. And Amazon pays
1: us a little kickback. You won't even notice. So, It's free. Just do it. As always, please follow us on Twitter at Smart People Pod and head over to Facebook. Like us over there at Smart People Podcast. We enjoy seeing comments that people make when they you know, suggest new new guests, new ideas for this show. Um, we enjoy talking to people and giving out books on there. So head on over to Facebook, like us, pass it on to your friends, have them like us as well. So now we're going to turn it over to our interview with Dr. Rose.
0: He was an awesome guy to speak with. You can tell he's really smart and he really wants to, he's doing this for the right reasons. He just wants to make you know his contribution to the field of education, change what he has learned through years of experience need to be changed. And it was awesome talking to him. So hope you guys enjoy and catch us after the interview. The first thing that drew us to to you and to your book is you know, as I mentioned, we did this to to learn more about a lot of topics because we were curious and felt like some of the things we may not have been exposed to, whether it be in you know in the formal school system or just in life. and I know you talk a lot about just in general what it means to be educated and mm-hmm. you know the value of intelligence and and an education so it's a perfect fit for us, and we kind of wanted to get your take on what, what does it mean to be educated and, and why people should you know, be active in their own learning and, and mm-hmm. expansion of their mind.
2: So this question about um, what it means to be educated, I mean, what we're getting to here is, is the way we in our society define uh, what it means to be an educated person. And I I have thought a lot about that. It seems to me that some of the qualities that indicate that somebody is educated, and and let me just say right now, you can get this education in a lot of different kinds of ways. I mean, certainly formal schooling is one of them, but there's lots of other ways, too. I mean, through certain kinds of work, through apprenticeships, through particular kinds of relationships, through other uh, public or private institutions, um, libraries, churches, and all that. So What I'm going to say does not only come from schooling, although schools are the primary cultural institution that we have to help people develop these qualities. So some of the qualities, it seems to me, of an educated person are certainly that that they're numerate and literate. That is, that they they can read, they can read critically, they can sort through information, which I think is a huge thing these days with the massive flow of information that we have across the Internet. They don't have to be mathematical whizzes, but they should have some sense of of mathematics, of arithmetic, of the way that kind of thinking works because we're thrown numbers all the time, right? This statistic says this and this says that, and it would be great if we had some degree of an ability to kind of sort our way through all these claims that are based on numbers. It also seems to me that to be educated means that you're um, you're able, you, you know how to learn. So that if you confront something new, you're able to use maybe some of those literacy and numeracy skills to help yourself uh, figure out what this is, to know what sources to go to, to be able to figure out what sources are reliable and which ones aren't. It seems to me also to be educated, someone needs to have at least a basic sense of, of history and, um, and our own history and our own political history and intellectual history to be a, you know, it's the Jeffersonian ideal, right? To have a functioning democracy, you need an educated citizenry, and that means educated at least to a degree in, in one's history, in economics, in politics. I also think to be educated means that you're able to think things through and solve problems with other people. I mean, it's terrific if you stay in a cave your whole life and that's what you want to do. But let's face it, most of us live our lives out in the world, in the business world, the social world, civic, religious, and we're always confronted with things we need to think through. They're not always problems in the in the complicated sense of the word, but there are things that we need to work out together. And to be able to do that and think things through with others, I think, is another powerful indicator of what it means to be educated. So those are just some thoughts that, off the top of my head about the way I would define a, an educated person.
1: Dr. Rose, you actually touched on uh, a couple points that I had uh, with a question for you. Um, you brought you brought up the internet and with having the internet at our disposal, you know, that vast wealth of knowledge out there, it, it makes me wonder why we do concentrate so much on memorization for kids going through school, random facts, history dates, the periodic table, things that not everybody grasps very easily and then they are tested on it. Do you think that the emphasis should be more on creativity and the problem-solving that you brought up and then, you know, collaboration through, through teams and uh, of that sort, things that would have real-world application?
2: Yeah, that's a, really, that's a terrific question. You know, uh, just to take a historical look at that for a moment, um, in a lot of traditional cultures, and in fact in our own educational system all the way through the 19th and into the t- early 20th century, Memorization was the primary mode of instruction, kind of memorizing things and then reciting in class. So if you think we do a lot of that now, you'd have been around 100 years ago, you'd have seen a lot more. What's been interesting, I think, in education in our country over the last, oh gosh, 50, 60 years, is that there has been a real attempt to move away from just you know, committing things to memory and then spitting them back out. Lots and lots and lots of educational theory, as well as practice, people in actual classrooms doing things involves more of the kind of thing you're talking about. The finding information, coming to conclusions, uh, arguing for a point of view, collaborating, you know, all of that sort of thing is more present in our educational system than it was a long time ago. But you're raising a wonderful point, and that is. The future direction, I think, is in much more that way. I mean, we just, and and I got to say, a lot, a lot of work that's being done with teacher training and teacher development and trying to do that better is geared toward exactly the thing you're talking about. That is not just committing things to memory, but being able to use what you know in various kinds of creative and problem-solving ways. I do want to say one thing in favor of memorization, though, and that is that it seems to me that that being creative and being a problem solver is not antithetical to committing some things to memory. It seems to me that the best kind of education involves both of those. That is, you know, there's certain things we do have to commit to memory, whether it's a multiplication table or the periodic table that you mentioned, or the bones in the hand if you're, you know, if you're taking an anatomy course. So so there's, there's places for memorization. But what you're suggesting is when memorization trumps all else, then we're really in trouble and we just have a, a routine and kind of robotic educational system versus one that helps create the kind of people you're talking about who are creative, thoughtful, problem solvers who may well use memorized information, but using it in the service of
1: something else. Gotcha. That's a that's an excellent an excellent look on that. I never really looked at it that way. I guess the next question that I would have is because of the standardized tests that, you know, kids are taking now, whether it be SATs, SOLs, all these standards of learning, do you think that there's too much emphasis on these standardized tests or Have they been striking a better balance? Geez, you know, I'm really glad you brought that up because it was sitting in the back of my mind as
2: I was talking to you about this question of creative problem solving versus memorization. What worries me about some of the direction of school reform in the last decade or two is that there's more and more emphasis being placed on a small number of standardized tests, primarily of uh, mathematics and reading. Now, look, I... (laughs) those are core skills, obviously. I mean, of course, it's important for students to learn how to read and to be able to demonstrate that and to learn arithmetic and mathematics and be able to demonstrate that, of course. But what has happened with, particularly with the No Child Left Behind Act and Unfortunately, it's being carried over in the Obama administration's race to the top is that there's so much emphasis being placed on this narrow set of standardized tests that we have pretty good research evidence that suggests that at least in some schools and in some classrooms, the pressure is so great that teachers then teach toward the taking of those tests and teach students what they need to know in the way they need to know it to do well on those tests. So what ends up happening, and again, we got, a, we got good evidence of this, is that, is that even course, even material like history or social science or even science, for God's sake, gets trimmed back. And some subjects like arts, music, that sort of thing, just get completely removed because there's no time for it. So there's a lot of good things that are going on with school reform efforts. You know, I mean, a lot of attention being paid to schools, that's a good thing. There's a focus on kids who are not doing well, who schools don't serve well, that's a really good thing. So I'm not trying to say that the school reform movements of the last couple decades are are some kind of evil, but I am saying that there's aspects to them, powerful aspects to them, that worry me, uh, and a lot of people like me, worry us about, exactly the kind of thing you're talking about that is a kind of shift of school toward preparation for a narrow set of tests and a narrow set of skills that are tested on those tests which takes us away from this fuller definition of what it means to be educated that, that you and I have been talking
0: about one of the things that got me interested on this subject was I watched an amazing TED Talks video uh, by a man named Ken Robinson oh sure, and, sure. okay I figured you'd be aware of it. And he talks about how school kills creativity. And the reason or a lot of his reasoning was school, what we think about in terms of formal education was a construct of the industrial revolution. It was teaching people to be able to function in an industrialized world. And obviously, we're well past the, you know, working in factories and all that type of economy. Do you think we are still conducting kind of a 20th century method of education?
2: I know that uh, that Ted piece that you're talking about, it's it's been, as you know, it's been really widely circulated and he is a, a remarkably engaging speaker. And then the graphics that they have that go with those those presentations are amazing. And as you suggest, he raises some really kind of visionary points. But what also happens in presentations like this, I mean, it's almost part of the, the genre in a way, is that he deals in in broad, sweeping kinds of statements. His characterization of school right now is in some ways accurate, but absolutely not fully. And there are so many classrooms that in fact, move very far away from that that kind of description that he gives us of what of what schooling is like. There are classrooms where the sorts of things we've been talking about really do go on, you know, engagement, creativity, working through sources yourself, thinking things through with others, independent thinking, all of that. Now, to the broader question of the way school is structured, that's an interesting question. Mass education was developed as as you know, through, through the early and especially into the mid and late 19th century. And the structure of schooling was, as it moved into the 20th century and it got really huge with compulsory education and more and more young people uh, entering school, there was a kind of philosophy of education and a philosophy of school administration that was very much influenced by industrial thinking. So when we look at the way large schools, like how large high schools are structured, right, the grade levels, classrooms, the hierarchical structure of administration, all that sort of thing. It does resemble an old-time business model. So I think where somebody like Ken Robinson is valuable is to get us to begin to think of how we might reconfigure that general structure, period. And there are places that are trying to do that, places that don't stick to those rigid time schedules and don't stick to that rigid kind of grade level thing and don't stick to the separation of disciplines like, okay, it's 945, now we go to geography. Oops, it's 1035, now we go to math, right? But rather, they think of ways to integrate all of these subjects. And I do think that that's an important direction for the future. So just to summarize, that is to rethink that fundamental structure of schooling, the rigid time slots for classes, the rigid separation of subject area, of disciplines, the limited amount of time that teachers have to work with, if any, uh, that teachers have to work with each other and think things through and try and create a kind of integrated curriculum. The way we even define achievement, you know, as opposed to grades and the kinds of tests we were talking about a minute ago, how about something that's much more project-oriented, right? I mean, can someone with certain kinds of assistance, assistance creates something that's really impressive, that involves the integration of mathematics and science and geography and whatnot. So all of that sort of, and then, of course, integrating electronic technology into all of this in a powerful way, integrating the computer and the Internet and whatnot uh, in an integral way into the curriculum. All of those things, I think, are science for the future, and people are doing that. I mean, not a lot. But people are beginning to do that. So Ken Robinson's vision, I, I think, is, is emerging already in, in certain places and under certain conditions.
0: Okay. So as you were just saying, that was going to be a question I had for you. You kind of touched on it was I'm sure you have offered in, in your writings and, and in your presentations and everything your solution to the rigidity and structure so it's things like projects and kind of integration and things like that. Anything else that you have found or you believe would be a great step forward in terms of how we educate children?
2: Well, I think I want to say two things that, that maybe um, one of them you would expect and maybe the other one you won't. So let's start with the one to expect. In addition to the things I said about people rethinking the, you know, the narrow, it, it's what, the historians David Tyek and Larry Cuban called the grammar of schooling, which I think is a perfect phrase, right? This, this kind of structure of the way school looks, the classrooms, the rigid separation of subject area, material, the rigid day, all of that sort of stuff. In addition to rethinking the way school is structured, I want to say something as a kind of cautionary tale about the use of the computer and electronic technology. As we rethink school, Right as we begin to move toward these more holistic and organic and integrated ways of thinking about educating people, obviously computer and the Internet and electronic technology is going to be central to this. What we have to remember, though, is that even that absolutely astounding technology is not in and of itself a magic bullet, that it has to be carefully integrated into the whole notion of schooling integrated into the curriculum. Otherwise, what we see happening all the time is schools spend a ton of money or or philanthropy spends money and gives schools computers or schools install computers or the classrooms are all wired or all that sort of technological stuff is taken care of. But nothing exciting is being done on them, right? Because they're kind of separated from – the whole enterprise of education. So one thing I want to add is just that as we do naturally move toward the increased use of computer technology, we really want it to be done in a thoughtful and integrated way. The second thing I want to say, and maybe this is a surprise, is that as we move forward, I don't want us to forget certain kinds of traditional and old-fashioned things. A while back, I had this remarkable project that I loved so much, I traveled around the United States whenever I could get time away for a week or two. I traveled to public school classrooms, K through 12, half of them in urban areas, half in rural, virtually all of them, though, working with students who were not super privileged. So I didn't stack the deck by going to school districts or areas of cities where you would imagine schooling to be terrific. I went, purposely went to places where you know there weren't a lot of resources. but what I did was I, I looked for and I found good classrooms. this is across the country, north, south, east, west, rural urban and I catalogued it, it was, this was a book called "Possible Lives," and I catalogued characteristics of good teaching, and you can imagine. That what was going on in those classrooms was quite different i mean if it was in arizona near the navajo or hopi reservation it would be different than if it was in the central city in chicago and that would be different from rural montana which was different from the mississippi delta so there's all kinds of differences right but what i was looking for as well were certain kinds of commonalities in what teachers did and how they did it and what i came up with is a list that's really not rocket science but it's striking in its in its power Let me quickly give you a few of the characteristics. The classrooms these people created in their very different ways, they were safe and respectful places. That is, people treated each other civilly, but they were safe and respectful also in that people felt free to challenge. You know, teachers pushed students, but in an atmosphere where students didn't feel like they were being demeaned. These classrooms were places where students were given various kinds of authority for their own knowledge. That is, they had to be responsible for doing the work, for looking things up, for rewriting something, for coming back at a problem another way. But even though that went on, these classrooms were also places where teachers figured out ways to give students a lot of support, a lot of assistance as they kept striving to do a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. These classrooms were places where, as I just mentioned, there were high expectations. They were also places where you just could see teachers being so resourceful. You know, they had just a lot of material, a lot of ideas, a lot of experience in their back pocket, and they were able to use it in ways to respond to what students were doing or when students were making mistakes. These are the characteristics of good and healthy classrooms, whether they were going on in 1930 or 2030 where you have a knowledgeable and resourceful teacher, where you've got a space that's created that is safe and respectful, where you have high expectations, but also means provided to meet those expectations, that kind of support, where students have a chance to be authorities and the things that they're learning. I don't want us to lose those as we move ever forward into new ways of thinking about classrooms and new ways of using technology.
1: If you remove the teacher's assistance, I could compare that to my college experience where, you know, we were given the responsibility of making sure that we read and gained the knowledge ourselves. And we also had, or I guess the decision whether we wanted to come to class or not, take the responsibility of that. So do you see that the college atmosphere is having an influence over how we're teaching our younger kids now?
2: That's a really interesting question historically, because there's always been a kind of downward pressure, if you want to call it that, um, from the college into the high school. That is, as the high school was emerging as an institution in the 19th century, its curriculum looked virtually like a college curriculum, except less intense, I guess, less advanced, rather. That's the word I want. So there's always been this kind of pressure or tension between the college and the high school with the college kind of putting this downward pressure on the high school. Now, whether or not it's a good thing that schooling mimics what college is like, I'm not so sure. I just don't know. It's an, it's, I honestly don't have an answer to the question. I think in the ways we were just talking about, that kind of independence and and encouragement to you know, do good work and be engaged in it that you're describing in your college experience I think when we do see that in K through 12, it's a powerful thing, but we got to remember these are young people, and particularly as you, you know, move down out of the high school and through middle and elementary school, and they're going to need just a lot different level of support and emotional encouragement than you or I would have needed when we were in college. So I take your point that really the point you're making, I think, is that when you look at good education. Regardless of the, kind of the grade level or where it's at, there are certain characteristics that are shared. But right. again, depending on the, on the level of development, you're going to need to provide maybe different kinds of support for students to be able to reach those goals and match those expectations. But that's a really, you brought up a kind of a really interesting thing to think about.
0: You know, Dr. Rose, I, I did want to talk about, I mean, we have been talking about the subject, but... Your book, Why School Reclaiming Education for All of Us, is, again, the, the first thing that caught my eye when, when we were looking you up, and I really wanted to talk with you about it. And uh, it's an incredible book. I wanted to, to ask you kind of what was your uh, inspiration to, to do this? What was the, the reason behind it? What was the message you're trying to get out to everyone?
2: You know, there's a lot of different topics covered in the book from ranging from elementary school education to college to the purpose of education to the kinds of issues we've talked about with testing and all that. I mean, there's a range of things discussed in the book, but I think that the, I'd have to say that the overriding motive is to just get us to think about the initial question you raised which is, what is the purpose of education? And particularly, what's the purpose of education in a democracy, in a free society? And the reason I I wanted to think about that is because over the last, oh, geez, 20, 25 years, pretty much the only reason we've heard for sending kids to school or for going to college is the economic reason, the economic motive. That is, we need to prepare the next generation for the 21st century economy, and we need to maintain our economic position in the world. And the only way to do that is through the improved education of, of all of our young people. Okay, I completely agree. <laughs> economic advancement has, for a very long time, been part of what has driven mass education in the United States. Absolutely. And, you know, I come from a working class background, so I can tell you that that school made a huge difference in my life uh, in terms of my own economic mobility. So I am not trying to be snooty at all (laughs) about the economic reasons for going to school. But, you know, there's got to be, there's other reasons, especially in a free society, that we send kids to school. And they're the kinds of things we've been talking about throughout this conversation. We send kids to school to learn how to learn. We send kids to school to to learn how to think things through with other people. we Send kids to school for their own intellectual development. We send kids to school to find out new things, maybe even develop passions, uh, discover areas of study they didn't know about before. We send kids to school for we, we send kids to school for civic reasons, right? Again, the Jeffersonian ideal to be able to be fully functioning citizens in a democracy. But we haven't heard any of that for at least a generation, really from our policymakers and legislators. And I kind of wanted to just get that full range of reasons to go to school or to go to college. I wanted to get that full range of reasons back into the public conversation, because I think they're important. And you've been bringing them up in various ways throughout this conversation.
1: My follow-on question to that is, does it really matter that we're behind so many other countries in terms of education, such as China, Japan, um, all these different countries that lead us in math and science, I mean, when I look at it, I can understand why the U.S. is behind, where our language doesn't really help our kids in terms of numbers, the way that we do, like a numbering system compared to China and Japan. But do you think it matters that we fall behind these countries? Boy, that is a big and important
2: question. And, and I, gosh, there's so many things to say about it. So first of all, let, let, me, let me say I don't, I don't want to be naive about this and I don't want to be dismissive. Uh, I mean, of course, you know, of course it matters if we're doing a good job or a not so good job in educating our kids. Absolutely huge. And one of the ways that people try to measure this is through these international comparisons that you're talking about. But I guess what I want to point out is first a a few things. One is these comparisons can be misleading. And when you talk to people who are testing experts, they'll tell you, that first of all, sometimes we're comparing apples and oranges. I mean, our society is a very different society from Finland or South Korea, who always end up way at the top. I mean, our society is much larger. It's much less homogeneous. There's a wider income gap in our society than in theirs. I mean, there's lots of factors that make the societies pretty different. Second of all, there's technical issues that people bring up about testing itself, that is, the kinds of tests and testing across such different systems with such different cultural and linguistic backgrounds. So, so the first thing to say is that there are both technical as well as logistical kinds of reasons to not see those tests as, as the end all and be all, number one. Uh, number two, I want to repeat, I don't want to be dismissive of them. I just want us to be cautious in reading them. The third thing to say is, and this touches on the question you asked, I worry about the way we read those results. You, just, you asked a really important question. I mean, does, does it matter? Well, in some senses, it matters a lot. But what I think also matters is what lessons we learn from looking at those results. So if, for example, we say, oh, my gosh, you know, Finland is way ahead of us and Singapore is and South Korea is, after we admit that we have pretty different kinds of societies, then maybe we should get and look very closely at what it is that they do. I mean, what is it that happens in their school system that we might learn from? Well, their school goes longer. Oh, that's interesting. Let's look at that. Their teachers have much more status than they do in our country, and they have a richer kind of professional development. Well, gee, let's look at that. You know, maybe we, instead of spending tens of billions of dollars in all of these elaborate testing schemes that we have, what if we spent that money on a richer, more robust teacher development, I mean, that's connected to like the National Science Foundation and the National Council of Teachers of English and these places that could create long and rich kinds of, through the Internet, long and rich kinds of professional development for teachers. So if we look at the scores that way, that is, can we learn something from a, from what these places do with the way they think about schooling and teaching, is there something we can learn from that? Then I say the tests have have a legitimate purpose. But what scares me is when people just start treating it like it's March Madness, <laughs> right? They say, oh, my God, look at the rankings. You know, we're number eight or something. and And, and they just look at that and they don't analyze it further and think about it, and then we panic. That, that's not the right way to look at those results. We want to be more thoughtful about it and uh, kind of be more curious and open as to what we can learn.
1: Yeah, I think, I think the way I phrased the question might not have been so fair, asking if it, asking if it matters, because obviously, as you mentioned, of course it matters. I guess it's more towards what you were bringing up. Is it fair to measure us to these other countries when you know there is so many different things going on? I I appreciate that answer. It was great.
2: Again, South Korea, Finland, and the United States are pretty profoundly different places. Now, that doesn't mean to say that everything we do is right and what they do is wrong. I'm not even trying to lay any value judgment. I'm just saying that, objectively speaking, they're very different places. I mean, in Singapore, for example, you've got a central ministry of education. This country would never stand for a kind of central ministry of education coming out of Washington that dictated what everybody did in terms of their curriculum. So... You're right. We have pretty profound cultural differences. You know what? There's one other thing that that I just saw in a report. I haven't had a chance to read it further, but let me throw it out there. You know, the reason that we hear all the time that we should be worried about these international rankings is because, again, the economic, that this is a sign that we're falling further and further behind in our competitiveness What's interesting is that when you look at some of those lists, you see that some countries that actually have pretty robust economies are further down than we are, Germany, for example. So that was curious to me because that would suggest that there's not just a one-to-one correlation between where you fall in these tests and and the quality of your economy. So again, it just gets back to the point you're making that we have to be really careful about just seeing these single-digit rankings as, con- as containing more information than they do. There, there's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot they don't tell us.
0: And I think it's bad when we, when we overreact to those results. Well, Dr. Rose, I know we've taken up a lot of time here, probably more than we said we were going to, but it, it's been so interesting and something that we're really glad to, to get on the show and I mentioned your book, Why School Reclaiming Education for All of Us. I wanted to ask you if there's anywhere else you'd like to lead our listeners to, a website you might have, or a cause, or, or anything you want to make known to anyone you can.
2: Well, you can certainly direct readers to my website. That would be terrific. I, I would appreciate it. Well, gosh, thanks, guys. Yeah, thank thanks you so the, much. Th- thanks for the good questions. Absolutely. Thanks again, guys. Thanks right.
1: so much, Dr. Rose. Have a good day. Take care. bye Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome back. Hope you guys enjoyed the interview with Dr. Rose. We know we did. You can find Dr. Rose's website at MikeRoseBooks.blogspot.com. You can find his book on there, Why School Reclaiming Education for All of Us. You can also find his book on our website, SmartPeoplePodcast.com. You can click on the book. It'll send you over to Amazon. You can purchase it that way. And it gives us a nice little commission on that. Helps us out and helps our guests out.
0: Nice little plug there, John. I like that.
1: Thanks. I love plugs. Well, we hope everyone is a little smarter due to this week's episode.
0: Stay tuned in the future for more amazing guests. As mentioned, we have begun marketing our episode that will be coming up in about three weeks with Gary Chapman, the author of Five Love Languages, That's going to be a fantastic episode, and we know everyone out there, everyone out there will be able to benefit from that. So thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of your week. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart People Pod. See you later. See ya.